The uh, decades following the crucifixion and the um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, this is kind of a crucial time in the Roman <laughs> Empire in terms of, of what's going to happen to the church uh, in the decades ahead, and also what's going to happen to Israel and Jerusalem and the temple in particular uh, in 70 AD. So last week, we kind of covered from about 41 AD when Gaius Caligula was murdered and then Claudius Caesar became the emperor of Rome. Uh, we, we went through and looked at some detail about the Herodian family. So as you're reading scripture, it gets kind of confusing because you got Herod the Great, you got Herod Agrippa, you've got all these different Herods. And so I gave you a little chart last week that was a helpful visual to understand who all of these uh, Herods and Agrippas are and how they relate to the biblical story. Um, that brings us tonight to the year 51 AD. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for our journey through your story. We call history. Father, teach us the lessons of history. Teach us the lessons of the past so that we don't, Lord, um, live our past and recreate and relive our mistakes of the past. Father, help us to learn. Solomon said that what was will, will be again, and it's because man forgets. But not only that, generation after generation is born into sin without the knowledge of God, and this is why you command us to disciple the nations. It's why you commanded your people to train up their children from, the, from even before they're born. Lord, uh, through all their lives to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. And so, Father, help us to be a people that recognizes and learns the lessons of history so that we can be effective lights in the darkness, that we can be salt that has not lost its flavor so that we can be a great witness to Christ in this earth to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, I kind of gave you the outline here on your handout. Um, so before we, uh, before we, well, I think I'll, I'll wait. Well, we're going to kind of review a little bit about what we uh, talked about last week, but let me get to a certain point here. So in 51 AD, certain Jews of the Pharisees professing Christ went to Antioch from Judea, and they taught the Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And this created a great disruption there among the believers at Antioch. Uh, in particular, Paul and Barnabas opposed these, uh, these Jewish these Jews who professed faith in Christ, but yet were calling for Gentiles to keep the law. And Paul called them false brethren brought in unawares. That's what he calls them in Galatians 2, 4. Uh, Acts chapter 15 kind of deals with this whole episode. And then in 52 AD, Paul returns to Jerusalem after 14 years. He goes with Barnabas and he takes Titus who is a Greek, and they're going to, ultimately, they're going to settle this matter. So the church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to go, and they're going to straighten out this matter. Because what had happened was these Pharisees claimed that the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem had sent them with this message that the Gentiles have to keep the law and be circumcised in order to be saved. So Paul goes to Jerusalem and, uh, and, and they have the great Jerusalem council. And Paul is seeking the verdict of the apostles and the elders as to, to what, what say ye concerning this matter. Uh, Paul's mind was already clear. He, he, he knew the gospel. He knew that the Gentiles were not to keep the law. Uh, that's why he opposed those brethren when they came to Antioch. 
And this counsel resulted in what, what is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 32. Uh, a large part of Acts chapter 15 is this letter. It's the record of this letter that the Jerusalem council sent to the Gentile churches. So they sent it by the hands of, of Paul and Barnabas. They go back to Antioch and they tell them that, that you do not have to keep the law. You do not have to be circumcised. They gave them four provisions, um, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from things sacrificed to idol, things strangled, and uh, from eating or consuming blood. And, and that's a whole interesting thing in and of itself. You can take those four things and you go back to the, um, the code that's given to us in Leviticus chapter 17 through 20, and you can see where um, they were teaching the Gentiles not that the law didn't matter. They were teaching them that there were aspects of the law that absolutely we must adhere to. And so when they use that phrase, abstain from sexual immorality, um, you can go to Leviticus chapter 17, verse through chapter 20, and it lays out the sexual ethic uh, that the Jews lived by. And this is also when Jesus, you know, it's, it, here we are at Pride Month, and we're going to be out on the streets on June 24th, uh, a week from this coming Saturday. And, and if you are out there and if you are engaging people in conversation, um, I have received countless, well, I could actually count them, not countless. That's being a little over the top. I've received a number of emails. I've actually received some letters that people have mailed to me, and they've left nice messages on the church phone as well. So after my appearance on the PBS NewsHour, it's amazing how many people have come out of the woodwork to send me information. Uh, and these are people that profess to be Christians who were appalled that I would even intimate that a homosexual would go to hell because of their homosexuality. And so, um, and you will hear them say, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Uh, you don't have any right to say that Jesus disapproves of homosexuality because he never mentioned it. He only mentioned divorce. And that's a, that's a heterosexual problem more than it is a homosexual problem. So you hear all of these things. Well, when Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When he uses that, that general phrase, the law, what parts of the law is he fulfilling and what parts of the law is he saying don't have to be fulfilled anymore? Well, he, he didn't exclude anything. He fulfilled all the law. And so uh, a number of these letters and messages I've got ask these uh, questions of me, these rhetorical questions like, um, I'm sure you don't eat shrimp, do you? I'm sure you don't wear polycotton blends in your clothing, do you? Uh, things like that, because the law says don't mix fabrics. The law says don't eat shrimp, don't eat pork. And actually, you know, they really don't, they don't truly know what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches concerning those things. But, but let's just fast forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let's go right here where we are in 52 A.D., when the Jerusalem council writes the letter and says to them, you can eat what you want. Eat all the bacon-wrapped shrimp that you want. Um, you don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses, but abstain from sexual immorality. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't eat things strangled and don't eat blood. Well, you can go back to Leviticus and you can see those four general categories cover a lot of ground. And here in the uh, Jerusalem Council's letter, when it says abstain from sexual immorality, that is a general term. It's where we get our word porno pornography, pornea. It's the Greek word that, where we get our word pornography. It's a general term used for sexual immorality that can mean any kind of sexual immorality, not excluding homosexuality or any type of transgenderism or sexual perversion or anything like that. Abstain from those things. 
So we have a charge, not only in the Old Testament scriptures and the law, but we have a charge to the New Testament church, in particular to the Gentile believers, to abstain from sexual immorality. And so that letter is written, is, in, is recorded for you in John, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 15. So it was in 52 AD when this letter was penned. And then after that letter, um, Peter, uh, they go back, they deliver the letter. Then, then Peter comes later and he meets with the believers at Antioch. And this is where Paul confronts Peter. It's recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, when Paul is, is writing to the Galatians and he's telling them when Peter comes to Antioch, he eats with the Gentiles, but when the Jews come from Jerusalem sent by James, Peter and the Jews in Antioch all of a sudden won't eat with the Gentiles because they fear the Jews that are coming from Jerusalem. And Paul confronts Peter and calls him out on his hypocrisy. And to Peter's credit, Peter repented and did the right thing and stopped being a hypocrite. Um, so this all happened around the same time that this letter was sent. 53 AD, Felix becomes governor of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Now, we'll meet Felix um, in the book of Acts. Uh, Felix is one of the ones that hears Paul's defense when Paul is uh, arrested in Jerusalem. He's sent to Caesarea. He's awaiting his trial. And... Uh, Agrippa, the younger, hears uh, Paul. Felix is another that hears Paul. Festus hears Paul. There was three Roman authorities that heard Paul's defense, and um, they all three felt like he was not guilty, but since he had appealed to Caesar, there was nothing they could do. Well, that Felix that we meet later on in the book of Acts was appointed governor now, remember, we've, we've looked at a few of these. There's a lot of movement here. So, not just when Roman emperors come and go, but when people fall out of favor. So, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee were all regions of, of, of Palestine. Um, that's what the land was called in that day. In Judea, Samaria, Galilee, these were different regions. There were others that all made up this land that we call Israel. And uh, Felix uh, becomes the governor over these three regions. Um, that year, 53 AD, Paul also sets out on his second missionary journey. Remember, Paul was in Antioch with Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas goes to Tarsus and gets Paul and takes Paul back to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch preaching the gospel. And they're there for a, a, a good period of time. And then they decide that they are going to head out. And they go on their first missionary journey. Uh, here in 53 AD, they are planning to go back and revisit the churches that they had established on their first missionary journey. And Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him. John Mark was his nephew, basically. It was his sister's son. And remember, in the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas go and they take John Mark, but somewhere along the way, John Mark decides that he wants to leave and go back home. Um, it doesn't really tell us why or anything. You know, maybe he was just young and, and maybe he just was homesick. Who the heck knows? But Paul didn't like the fact that John Mark abandoned them in the midst of their journey. And so as they're getting ready to go revisit all these churches, Barnabas wants to take John Mark, and Paul protests. Uh, and he says, we can't take him because he's not reliable. Um, we need people we can count on. And so this creates a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and they go their separate ways. Paul takes Silas with him and goes and visits these churches and Barnabas goes to Cyprus, which is where he's from and also where John Mark is from. Um, and they, they go there to preach the gospel. So they go their separate ways. And while Paul is retracing his steps and visiting these um, churches, 
again, I, I wish I had a map of the world to show you, but I don't. But if you, if you, if you can picture a map of the world, and, and if you can picture Asia, if you can picture where Israel is, and if you can picture where Israel is, and it kind of goes up here in Lebanon, and then, you know, Syria and Turkey's there, and Turkey juts out here, <clears throat> and the Black Sea is up there on the, the northern border of Turkey. Well, as Paul is making his way, he's winding, he's, he's in the eastern or the western parts of Asia there, and he's going to go up, and he's, his plan is to go along the coast of the Black Sea and go east into Asia and preach the gospel. And he sets out on this journey, but he has a vision of a man from Macedonia. Where's Macedonia? Well, across the Turkish peninsula, across the, the Western Asian peninsula, if you will, there where the Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea and all that, just across the Aegean Sea is Greece, what we would call Greece today. Well, Macedonia was the northern region of Greece. And a man from Macedonia appears to Paul in a vision and he says, come and preach the gospel to us. And the Spirit of God forbids Paul to go east into Asia and instead sends Paul west into Europe. And so Paul, in this vision, um, purposes then to go west to Macedonia from Asia into the continent of Europe. And so Paul, with Silas, Luke, and Timothy, they sail west to Greece. So they leave Asia and they sail across and they land in Greece or Macedonia. And Paul uh, ends up staying for a while in Thessalonica. 54 AD, Paul travels. He's in Greece there and he travels down to Athens. And there it says in Acts uh, that he reasoned in the synagogue. So everywhere Paul went, he went to the synagogues where the Jews were. Uh, he went to the people who had the scripture. He went to the people who had the witness of Jesus in the scripture and he went and reasoned with them and showed them from the scriptures that the Old Testament scriptures testified to Christ as the Messiah. There was no New Testament at this time. It was literally being written, if you, if you will, uh, as Paul is making these journeys. And so he, he goes to the synagogue. Uh, and, and remember, there are synagogues all over the known world because... The Jews were dispersed all over the known world. We're going through the book of James on Sunday mornings. And remember how James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes of the diaspora or the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Um, and, and it wasn't just the dispersion that took place when, when Agrippa persecuted the, the Jews or the Christians in Jerusalem, but it was the dispersion that had taken place over the centuries from Assyrians to Babylonians to Persians, and so they're scattered across the known world. And in all of these cities, major cities, minor cities, there are synagogues. So what did it take to build a synagogue or establish a synagogue? You needed 10 men. You needed 10 faithful men. If you had 10 faithful men, you could establish a synagogue wherever you were. Had nothing to do with the population of a city or anything like that. You needed 10 faithful men. And so there were synagogues all across the known world. So everywhere Paul went, he had the opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jews, but not just to the Jews. There were Gentiles who had become proselytes, who went to the synagogue because they wanted, they, they believed in the scripture, they believed in the God of scripture, and, and, and whether they had converted to Judaism or not, uh, there were also Gentiles. And we see this in the record of scripture where Paul uh, and we're going to see this very shortly. Uh, Paul preaches here in Athens. Uh, he preaches in the synagogue. He preaches in the marketplace daily. So daily he's in the marketplace. What's he doing in the marketplace? Talking to anybody that will talk to him. He's there witnessing to Christ. So he does in the marketplace what we do at the pride event. We walk around and we'll talk to anybody that will talk to us and engage them in conversation and give witness to Christ and, and talk with them, pray with them, uh, listen to them as they listen to us. 
That's what Paul did. He was in the market every day reasoning with, with people, uh, talking to devout men. Who were devout men? Uh, men who were seeking God. Maybe they were seeking the wrong God because remember he describes Athens as the city filled with gods. He says, you guys have a statue to every God that's known to man. In fact, you've even got a statue to the unknown God just in case you missed one because you knew that you did. And, and, and so Athens was full of people who were very religious or very spiritual, if you will. It's just they didn't all follow the right spirits, right? And many of them were humanist at the core. So they, they, they were... Um, they were philosophers. Remember, we talked about this, um, the difference between godly wisdom. Remember in James, James says, if any man lacks wisdom. Well, the concept, uh, the Hebrew concept of wisdom is very practical. It's, the Hebrew concept of wisdom is basically, in a nutshell, godly living. It's living out a godly life. It's walking out your faith. It's living out your faith. Obeying God and his commands and living a life that honors him. That's what Hebrew wisdom basically is to result in from a Hebrew concept. Greek wisdom, remember, we said was very different. It was much more subjective. It was much more philosophic. It was, you know, wondering um, <clears throat> what or who or how the cre cre uh, creation came to be. The Jews didn't wonder that. They knew how the creation came to be. The Greeks are wondering, you know, what's my purpose? Uh, it's all this speculative, philosophic stuff. Um, it was very subjective. And so the Greek concept of wisdom is not real conducive to the Bible. So these are the guys that Paul is engaging with every day, whether it's, um, you know, he's preaching in the synagogue to Jews or he's in the marketplace talking to Gentiles, anyone that will listen. Ultimately, he became so famous, if you will, there in Athens that they invite him to Mars Hill where all the philosophers are. And he addresses all the philosophers and they listen to him until he talks about a bodily resurrection. Then they, they're like, no, you lost us there. Because the Greeks were basically Gnostic in their belief and they, they didn't see the point of a bodily resurrection. In fact, uh, what you did in the flesh didn't matter. This flesh didn't matter it was getting rid of this flesh. And if, if your God was really a wise God and knew what he was doing, he would never have come in a body and he certainly would not have been raised up again in a body once he died and got rid of it. And so Paul is in Athens having these conversations, giving witness to Christ. He goes from Athens and he travels down to Corinth. Um, and this is where he meets Aquila and his wife, Priscilla. Uh, Aquila was a Jew. Uh, they, had been, they had been residents of Rome. They lived in Rome. Uh, Priscilla was Italian. And, but remember, they got kicked out of Rome because um, I, I think it was Caligula who kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And, and so they're in Corinth, and they're tent makers like Paul. And so they hook up with Paul, and they become fast friends. And, it, and, and it's during this journey at this time through the Jews' rejection of Paul's message that God affirms this call upon Paul's life. God, remember, originally called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, and so this is where Paul says, if you Jews won't listen to me, I'll go to the Gentiles. And, that, and that's what he did. And so God again affirms the call of Paul uh, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. 54 AD, Claudius Caesar died. He was poisoned by his wife, Agrippina. And uh, that was, you know, this is why Vladimir Putin is so paranoid about being poisoned. If you read anything about Putin, he won't touch things, he won't get close to people. He's because the Russians do this. I mean, we've heard in the news over the, the last number of years of the people that they've poisoned. Um, and so Putin was, was uh, I, I think he was head of the KGB. If he wasn't the head of the KGB, was he the head of the KGB? Does anyone know? 
I don't know if Putin was, but he was high up in the KGB, so he knows all about this. Well, this was very common. It's a very common method of, of assassination during these times as well. And um, Claudius Caesar is poisoned by his wife, Agrippina. And their son, Nero, um, actually, he's the son-in-law of Claudius, but the adopted son. So he's not his natural born son, but Claudius adopted Nero and raised him as his son. Nero was married to the daughter of Claudius, uh, and so he was Nero's son-in-law. And remember, we saw this with um, we saw this with Octavian and Tiberius. Tiberius was not the son of uh, of Octavian, but Octavian adopted him and raised him like a son, and then ultimately Tiberius becomes emperor after the death of Octavian. Well, this is kind of what happens here with Nero. Nero becomes emperor. Now, while we're talking about Nero, I thought I'd pull out my Mystery of History book and read something I thought was kind of interesting about, about Nero. Uh, Nero was born in 37 A.D. Um, all right. The fifth man, so remember, the Roman Empire in earnest began with Octavian. So Julius Caesar was... Um, the emperor of Rome before Octavian, but remember how Julius Caesar became emperor. He was part of this experiment that had never been tried before called the, the first triumvirate. So there were three guys who ruled Rome, and Julius Caesar was one of them. It was Pompey, Cassius, and Caesar. And remember, Caesar goes off to fight the, the Gaelic Wars, and he comes back, and they tell Caesar he's at the Rubicon River, which borders uh, Italy with Gaul. And they say, don't cross that river with your army. You can come as a private citizen, but don't cross that river with your army. Well, he does, and then he basically becomes the power, but, but Rome is not yet an empire. Octavian... Uh, in his defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium in, in like 37, 30, 33 AD, I believe, is, is actually when Octavian becomes the, for all practical purposes, the sole ruler of Rome. He eventually, in quick order, gets rid of the other two guys who were part of his triumvirate. He defeated Mark Antony. The other guy is gone. And now Octavian and the Senate just gives him all the power. They're happy to do it. So Octavian is the first ruler, uh, our first emperor of Rome. Nero becomes the fifth after Octavian. Octavian. So it's Octavian, it's Tiberius, it's Caligula, it's Claudius, and now Nero. But listen to Nero, the, some history about young Nero. The fifth man to attempt the job was hardly a man at all. At just 17 years of age, Nero became the emperor of Rome with the help and manipulation of his mother. So why do you think Agrippina poisoned Claudius? Because she wanted her son Nero to become the emperor. And Nero... Um, then, with the help of his mother, becomes the emperor of Rome. In the beginning, Nero showed some genuine humility as the young leader of Rome. When told that a silver and gold statue would be built in his honor, Nero shyly asked that it not be done. And when it was requested that he sign his first death sentence for a criminal... Nero said with great reservation, would that I had never learned to write. And what that shows us is that 
when Nero was young at that age, he had a conscience. He wasn't the monster then that he became. Um, so it bothered him to think of ending someone's life with merely his signature. Young Nero was also bothered by the Roman gladiator system in which men were forced to fight to the death. He felt that it was barbaric, which, which it was. But unfortunately, both his humility and his compassion were soon to wear off. In time, Nero became a man of great indulgence with the power and wealth of Rome completely available to him. He lived for the pleasure of things above all else. It was written that he slept most of his days away and partied and carried out business through the night. In living for so much pleasure, Nero developed a selfish, cruel, and paranoid disposition. Paranoia um, became so great at one point he went so far as to have his own mother, the mother who poisoned her husband and his father so he could become emperor, he had her killed for fear that she was trying to take over his kingdom, and maybe she was. Um, so he had her killed. His mistress, um, uh, Popea, convinced him that it was true that Agrippina was trying to take over Nero's kingdom so you can imagine there was some jealousy there between the mistress of Nero and, Nero, and, and Nero's mother uh, because it was said that, that Agrippina would approach the throne and want to sit with Nero as he was sitting on the throne, but it, that was just not done. And so the, the, the elders of the Senate got a hold of him and said, you, you, can't, you can't let her do this. You know, go... And talk to her, but you can't let her approach and sit there and take that position. So you can kind of see, read between the lines. She wanted to get rid of, of, of Claudius so that she could basically rule as a regent as her son was very young and immature. And more than likely what happened, that with all of this power play, he learned very quickly, um, at least in, in his way of looking at it, nice guys finish last, so he wasn't going to be a nice guy. And he murders his mom, and um, he also murdered a lot of his family. Uh, she was just one of many people that Nero had killed. Um, Nero went on a killing spree to rid his empire of anyone who appeared to threaten him. This included a wife named Octavia, a half-brother named Seneca, bunches of his chief officers, anyone that who, who seemed a threat to him, his behavior became more lewd more, and more vulgar after his wife's death. He just sunk into complete sin and licentiousness and cruelty. Uh, some of the things that he would do was really quite horrible, just for fun. Um. Strangely enough, in some ways, Nero, Nero acted like he didn't even want to be Roman emperor at all. On, on occasions, he would dress like, like a commoner and roam the streets of the city, getting into all kinds of mischief. He hung out with gangs and street ruffians and beat up innocent people, um, just like any street thug would do, just so he could go do that. Uh, he... He also appeared to spend more time in Greece than he did in Rome. Remember, this is another pattern we've seen with past Roman emperors. Julius Caesar and Mark Antony in particular spent more time in Egypt than they did in Rome. Uh, Nero loved Greece. He loved the Greek theater. He loved arts and music. And so he would spend much time um, in Greece Unlike any of the other Roman emperors, Nero regularly performed in Greek theater. At every opportunity he could create, he sang, played the harp, read poetry, or, or acted. He was so serious about his career in the arts that he made it against the law to leave a theater where he was acting or to fall asleep during one of his performances. Aren't you glad you didn't have to go to any of his performances? 
Um, the Romans were appalled at Nero's behavior. They didn't like the idea of their emperor mingling with the artists and musicians of Greece. Uh, he ignored their ridicule and went on to compete in Greek sporting events. His favorite was chariot racing. Um, he received 1,808 winning crowns for all the Greek competitions that he was involved in. That's a lot. But that, that very well could be. You might have something there. Who wants to beat Nero? Right. Who wants to be that guy? Um, Nero was told he ought to just kill himself rather than bring such shame to Rome uh, be, because, um, because this was an affront to the Romans. To, to like Greek culture more than Roman culture said that you believe Greek culture superior and so it was very insulting to the Romans that their emperor was so in love with the Greeks. Um, and he was encouraged to stop this uh, because it was causing him to become unpopular with the people, but he didn't care. To make himself even more unpopular with the Romans, Nero publicly whined about the layout of the crowded city of Rome. He didn't like where all the buildings were situated. It was true that Rome had grown rapidly and was very congested. Streets had not been well laid out, leaving Nero little room, if any, to build new palaces. Knowing that is how Nero felt, it only makes you wonder if he was indeed the one behind the great burning of Rome. Um, for almost a full week in AD 64, we're not there yet, uh, Rome went up in flames and the great fire raged out of control for about two-thirds of Rome was destroyed. Many people lost their lives, and uh, Nero, it is said, played the liar as Rome burned, and then, of course, as we know, he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. Yeah, yes, yes. The, the, no, no, the real, both. It's a, no pun intended, but that's a great uh, double meaning there. He played the liar, and he played the liar, yes. So he becomes emperor of Rome in uh, AD 54. Now, I didn't bring this up in one of the past lessons, but um, a few years, so by AD 55, here is what the historians say the condition is in Judea. At the beginning of Nero's reign, all Judea was filled with thieves, thieves, robbers, this had been the case for several years, and many were put to death daily by Felix. Uh, he just had people executed every day because thieves were everywhere. So if we back up a little bit a few years prior. Remember, the Jewish people were a seditious people, so they were great trouble to the Romans. And all of the people who were appointed in authority there, uh, kind of had to deal with this reality that the Jews were seditious. There was this brewing tension always there. Um, remember, the Herods uh, were given this power. So Agrippa, all the Herods are ruling. They're given this power, this authority by Rome. Rome is the power. But the Herods were Jews. They, were, uh, they had the religion of the Jews. They weren't um, they were part Jew. They weren't full-blooded Jews. Um, and they weren't particularly popular with the Jews, but they would rather have a Herod ruling than they would uh, just a straight-out Gentile. And so what had happened, there had been a series of seditions, and there were some people that kind of created some notable uh, uprisings. They were, they were kind of put... They were put down pretty effectively. But what happened was this, every time this would happen, you'd have these bands of, of, of rebels who would come together and they'd, they'd attack a group of Romans, they'd attack a city, they'd, they'd do something to try to get the Romans back, or there were all kinds of things where some Jews were attacking Samaritans, and there was an incident there where these uh, Samaritans supposedly started a fight and murdered a Jew, and then the Jews went back and just like killed a whole village, men, women, and children of the Samaritans. It was like um, 
and that's what everybody saw. And so this created like a years-long controversy that got to the emperor, and, and this is under Claudius, and, and they're trying to get to the bottom of who do we kill here? Who are we going to have executed, Jews or Samaritans? And, and so because of Agrippa's relationship with Claudius, they're able to basically tell him, look, the people at fault here really are the Samaritans. Yeah, the Jews went and killed a whole village of the Samaritans, but the Samaritans started it by murdering a Jew. And so Claudius uh, sides with the Jews and then finds the people responsible, who knows what it really was, and, 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 and punishes the Samaritans. Well, things like this would happen, and you would have these bands of, of Jewish rebels who are trying to get the population to rise up against Rome, and they'd get put down. They're being literally, they're being executed every day. Um, and so uh, in 55 AD, this has been going on for a while, but it's getting worse. So the conditions in Judea are getting, they're, they're, they're disintegrating, they're degrading. Safety's degrading because there's thieves roaming everywhere, violent men everywhere. Um, and so Jonathan was the high priest. Now remember in, in the system, the high priest, he's the leader of the Jewish people. You've got the Sanhedrin, which is the, 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 the council of 70 elders, and by this time, the majority, the majority of the Sanhedrin are Sadducees. Uh, the high priest is uh, the, the guy who rules over this council. And Felix, uh, the guy appointed by Rome to rule Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, he does not get along with Jonathan, the high priest, because Jonathan, the high priest, is constantly just degrading Felix and on Felix and telling him what a sorry um, ruler he is. And you, you would think that you would realize that you're talking to the guy who has the power to basically... But, you know, Felix, they also knew that Felix couldn't just send troops in there and murder the high priest because then you really would have an uprising. So what does Felix do? He can't tolerate Jonathan the high priest anymore, so he bribes his great friend, one of his best friends, called Doris, to murder Jonathan. And so uh, it's a feast. It's one of the pilgrim feasts, and, and uh, this group of men who are supposedly coming to Jerusalem for religious worship of the feast, they come and they all have daggers under their garments, and they're actually there because this guy's a great friend of Jonathan. They're with Jonathan and his family. They're all, they're having dinner. And all these guys are there with daggers. And in the right moment, it's kind of like uh, Julius Caesar. At the right moment, they all pull their daggers out and they kill Jonathan, the high priest. Well, guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. The high priest is murdered. Because Felix bribes his friend, so he's murdered, but no one is punished. And so things like this began to happen. And in 55 AD, it culminates to the point that it had, been, it had come to be known in the empire that Judea is just filled with thieves and violent men. So groups started coming to, you need to get rid of somebody? We'll go to the pilgrim feast, and while we're there, we'll secretly hide our daggers, and when no one's looking, we'll stab the guy and kill him, and we'll get rid of our enemy. This actually began to happen on a somewhat regular basis, so much so that it, 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 was, it was said that thieves and violent men and deceivers, magicians, filled Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about this. We're at 55 AD. Now, think about what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when he's talking about all of those. Uh, if they come and tell you the Christ is here, the Christ is there, don't follow them. Let me just go there for just a moment. Let me find this. Um, I just want to read this to you from Matthew 24. Because this is exactly what began to happen uh, around this time. 
Um, Um, there's one, uh, let's see, I don't remember which gospel it's in, um, where he, I think he mentions going out into the desert, but if they say here, um, here is the son of man, he says, don't, don't listen to them. Take heed that no one deceives you. It's, it's in Matthew, uh, we'll just read this in Matthew 24, 4. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, but don't listen to them. They will come, and they will deceive many. Um, and that is exactly what began to happen. He says also in verse 11 there in Matthew 24, verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. History tells us this is exactly what was taking place in Judea and in Jerusalem. The very things Jesus is saying here, the history, the historians record it. This is, this is why the Romans hated having to deal with the Jews and hated having to rule in that region because it had become just unruly. And so any act of retribution or any act of punishment, uh, even though it might have been justified on the Romans' part, any, it was seen as cruelty by the Romans against the Jews and it just contributed to building more and more tension between the Jews and the Romans. And so um, this began to happen. These violent incidents, these uh, just thievery, people would come to the pilgrim feast and they would just use it as occasion because you had literally hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem from all over the world. Thieves would descend upon Jerusalem and they would use those feasts as cover to rob people, to murder people, and those murders happened in the city. They even happened in the temple. Uh, and so Jerusalem literally became a city of blood and violence and lawlessness, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, abounded. Um, and the history tells us this is exactly what happened. And so the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas became infested with thieves and violent men. There were also deceivers and magicians. These are the people who were saying, I am the Christ. Uh, and they would lead people out into the desert with the promise that they're going to do these signs um, by God. Uh, if you remember last week when we read uh, some, of the, some of the stuff that was taking place in the city of Rome and around Rome, same thing's happening in Jerusalem. So you... You have these men who are master manipulators. So you think guys like, I mean, back in the day, who remembers the great Kreskin? Anybody remember Kreskin? John, you remember Kreskin? You know, I met Kreskin. Do you know that I met Kreskin? In fact, when I was in college, Kreskin called me up, and he somehow... I still don't to this day don't know how he did it, but he he told me my name. He told me my right off my something from my driver's license. I mean, he did it. Um, David Copperfield, all these magicians, these guys who are illusionists. That's not a new thing. Those guys existed back in the day, and they would profess to be the Christ, the Messiah. They would profess to be great prophets who could do great, powerful things uh, in the name of God. And they would lead people out and they would use their ability to manipulate and deceive people and they would, they would raise up these seditious groups um, 
And, and then when they were disillusioned, they'd come back, the Romans would kill them because they were seen as a bunch of seditious rebels that they didn't want around. And so this began to be commonplace. Um, an Egyptian in 55 AD, there was an Egyptian who rose up calling himself a prophet leading many astray and convincing them that God would overthrow the Romans. And he got, Luke says 4,000 in the, in the record at Acts. Some of the historical records say that he gathered, gathered as many as 30,000 Jews. Uh, and and he, taught, he convinced them that the walls of Jerusalem were going to come down and then they would be able to just march in and take over the city and overthrow the Romans. Well, that didn't happen. And uh, Felix sent an army out and uh, killed a bunch of those guys and arrested a bunch more. But the Egyptian, who's, who was his reputation was that he led 4,000 murderers out into the desert, the Egyptian got away. This is the same Egyptian that the Roman guard, remember when Paul gets arrested, he's in Jerusalem and he is talking to the Jews and... Um, and they're trying to kill him, and the Romans have to come and rescue Paul to keep him from being ripped apart by the Jews. Uh, and the Roman guard says, are you the Egyptian? Aren't you the Egyptian? Because Paul asked him, he says, let me address my people. Uh, I'll, and he speaks to the, the Roman guard, and he's like, aren't you the Egyptian? Can you speak Hebrew? He said, no, I'm a Hebrew. I'm not the Egyptian. Well, the Egyptian that that Roman guard refers to in the book of Acts is this Egyptian who raised up all of these people, got to follow him because they thought that he was some uh, man with the power of God to do miracles. But in reality, he was just a, he was a scammer. He was a con artist. And there were lots of those guys. Now, later on, when we get to the siege of Jerusalem uh, in, in, you know, between 66 and 70 AD, we're going to see that uh, there were those people even within Jerusalem who deceived the Jews who were fighting amongst themselves while the Romans were outside waiting for them to either die or kill themselves. So that Egyptian is who, um, who they thought Paul was at first. The Romans thought, thought he was. Um, 56 AD, Paul sails to Corinth, back to Asia. Um, so he... Remember, he is in Athens, and then he goes to Corinth. He stays in Corinth for, for um, quite a while, and then he leaves Corinth, and he goes back to Asia, and he goes ultimately to Ephesus. And then, um, and then he ends up, uh, he goes from Ephesus down to Jerusalem, then he embarks on his third missionary journey uh, in 56 AD, somewhere around there. Uh, in 59 AD, so he's on his third missionary journey for a while, uh, and he comes back and he spends some uh, time in different places. Um, in 59 AD, he makes plans to go to Jerusalem, uh, and this is uh, also the year that Nero murders his mother, Agrippina. 59 AD is also the year that Paul wrote, um, it's believed he wrote the first letter to the Corinthian church from Lydia. And then from Lydia, Paul goes to Ephesus, and it's while he's in Ephesus at this time that the, the riots break out because of his preaching of the gospel, and so many people turn away from um, worshiping uh, Diana and buying the little temple trinkets. So the silversmiths and the coppersmiths are losing money hand over fist, and so they create this uprising and this riot breaks out and Paul uh, has to leave Ephesus and he goes back to Macedonia. In 60 AD, um, from Corinth, he writes his letter to the Romans. Um, and Paul makes his final journey to Jerusalem from Corinth. He, he ultimately travels from Corinth, makes his way to Jerusalem, and this would be his final journey. This is where he's going to be arrested and he'll make his appeal to Caesar as they're getting ready to beat him. And he says, do you beat Roman citizens? I appeal to Caesar. And, and, um, and then he's sent to Caesarea to await um, his transport after he's examined by three, the three local Roman authorities. 
61 AD Mark, that is John Mark, um, dies in the eighth year of Nero. Uh, he, it is said that he first preached Christ in Alexandria, and he was buried there uh, in Alexandria. He's highly regarded there in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, 62 to 63 AD, it's decreed that Paul would be sent to Caesar, so he is uh, sent over to Caesarea, and he's there for a while. Uh, by 63 AD, the decree is made, and then he is put on a boat and, and sent to Rome. But remember, Paul warns them this is not the right time of year to be traveling across the Mediterranean, but they wouldn't listen to him, and he, sure enough, they are shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and um, they stay there for three months, preaches the gospel. This is where the snake comes out and uh, bites him, and they think he's a god because it doesn't kill him. Um, and then ultimately in that year, 63 AD, Paul sails from Malta to Rome. He arrives in Rome. There are people waiting for him, and then he is transported up uh, and remains in Rome there until he appears before Nero. We will, um, we'll, we're going to stop there. We're going to come back and we're going to look a little bit more in depth about Rome, Paul's time in Rome. Um, we'll also get into the persecution that Nero uh, brings to the church at this time and look a little bit more at what's happening uh, there in Rome. This is really kind of the beginning of the major persecution against the church. It's fixing to break out. We've already had persecution by the Jews, primarily by the Jews uh, against the church, but Rome is getting ready to, under Nero, um, really bring difficult persecution um, to, to the church. There was persecution under Caligula and Claudius and all these guys and in some forms, but nothing like what we're going to see beginning with Nero and moving forward. There's going to be really for the next um, two and a half centuries waves. There's 10 waves of persecution against Christians under the Roman Empire until Constantine takes the throne and ends uh, the persecution of Christians under Roman authority. So any questions? We're going to stop there. We're out of time. Any questions or any thoughts about anything? What year do you attribute uh, to the Apostle John uh, passing away? Um, what year do I attribute? Well, it's... I, I, I'm not sure. There are some who believe that um, he was like 98 years old when he passed away. I, I, I'll look that and research that. Um, well, now, now, when he passed away and when he wrote Revelation, um, there are people, the, a, a, a general consensus among many, especially in our Western and evangelical churches that are premillennial uh, and dispensational, believe that the book of Revelation was written around 95 A.D., uh, I believe all the canon of Scripture was written before 70 A.D. And I believe uh, there's only one reference to Paul, I mean to John writing Revelation that late. And, and if you look at the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, his, the, what he wrote, uh, the, in, the internal evidence of the letter of the book, of the document, uh, seems to be very consistent with the Jerusalem that is still intact, still operating uh, no mention of it being destroyed. No mention of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do believe that what, in fact, what the revelation of Jesus Christ, what, what John, I believe what John is writing about there is in large part what occurred in 70 AD um, in, in warning the church. Well, I think it's very possible he could have passed away long after the, the uh, he could have passed away after the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, because he, he 
Yeah. Like 90, I mean, um, he, some, some say he lived to be over 100 years old. I don't, I don't know that anybody really knows that, but, and I don't know that anybody really knows when. I do believe the canon of Scripture was complete before 70 A.D., and I think... What, what year do you attribute to the uh, crucifixion and ascension of Christ? You weren't here for all of that discussion? I'm asking you because there's a linkage. Uh, so, the crucifixion of Christ, I think we, uh, I, I, I think... That 33 A.D. is a um, pretty widely accepted. Uh, there's, there, I've seen people who adhere to dates as early as 29 A.D. and as late as like 37 or 38 A.D. Yeah. But 33 A.D., if it's 33 A.D., April, the Pentecost, uh, Pentecost, Passover would have been on a Friday, April 3rd, in, in 33 A.D., which is consistent with, uh, if you believe in a Friday crucifixion. So within 37 years after the ascension of Christ, all of this occurred. Yeah. Both Rome and all of the agitation and the declination of morality. Yeah. 37 years. Yeah, and the historians record it. it, it it's uh, lawlessness is just like the very words of Jesus there in Matthew 24 are being played out on the ground in Judea at this time, leading up to that great uprising of the Jews against the Rome, Romans. Now, that's, that is a, we're going to take some time to look at that. That is a fascinating bit of history. And I think it's a bit of history that much of the Western church today doesn't pay much attention to. Um, and when you read uh, what transpired there with the destruction of Jerusalem, in the years leading up to that, uh, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Any other questions? All right. You know, 